hear our scripture from the book of Genesis. Now the serpent had more naked intelligence than any other animal of the field that the sovereign God had made. And it said to the woman, Indeed, did God say, You too shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of any tree in the garden we may eat. Though the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, God said, You too shall not eat, and shall not touch it, lest you too die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You too will certainly not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you too will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for fruit, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her man who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Our second scripture is from the Gospel according to Matthew. Beware of false prophets who will come to you all in sheep's clothing, but inside are rapacious wolves. By their fruits you will know them. Are grapes gathered from thorns or from thistles figs? Thus every good tree bears beautiful fruit, but the rotten tree bears wicked fruit. A good tree cannot bear wicked fruit, nor can a corrupt tree bear beautiful fruit. Every tree that does not bear beautiful fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will know them by their fruits. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. Please rise in body or in spirit to join in singing Healing River of the Spirit, Voices Together, number 642.
I begin by sharing that something is awry with our just peace lamp. And so I'm just going to snuff it um, because I'm not sure it needs a little bit of tending, I think. It's spewing some smoke. Uh, and so it is good to know that as I snuff the light of the just peace lamp, that the light of Christ's just peace is within each one of us. Thanks be to God. Amen. All right, let's just take care of that. Not sure quite what's going on. Well, last week there was an elephant not in the room. Today there's an elephant in the room. It is my robotic arm. Um, uh, because so many of you are curious and have been asking, I'll just take a minute to say that I am thankfully out of the splint as of Friday. This is a huge relief. It means I can actually take this thing off and take a shower, um, which is really wonderful. Uh, but I will be in this for the next couple of weeks. Uh, the orthopedist and the occupational therapist gave me stern lectures about taking these next few weeks very seriously for the sake of my long-term healing and recovery and to take seriously how much my body is working to heal all of the ligaments that have been stretched and torn at my elbow so thank you to each of you for your prayers and for your interest and your concern and for your food it has been delicious this story that we have just heard from Genesis 3, a familiar one, but one that we don't always hear in worship or hear preached. We heard the first part of it this morning, and next Sunday we will hear a continuation of the story. We really have just sort of stopped right in the middle of the story. And so, in a sense, this sermon is also going to stop in the middle and then pick up with part two next Sunday. So here is part one of the Genesis 3 sermon, a passage that has haunted women for a very long time and has also been used to haunt women. It is important to note in our reading of a text like this that is very familiar, that we have been so influenced by Augustine and by Milton, Dante's Inferno, and influential others in our reading and remembering of this story of leaving the garden. We have been so influenced by those retellings of this story that we sometimes forget what's actually in the biblical narrative and what is not. We've been influenced to remember it as a tale of an evil Satan-like serpent who tempts a seductress woman who in turn tempts and seduces a man, causing by her action the fall of man, man singular as in Adam, Adam, and man plural, all of humanity forever to come, amen. Voila, the introduction of original sin into the human story, and th all thanks to a manipulative woman who couldn't resist the forbidden fruit. Like Pandora, the curious woman of chapter three 
is key in the unfolding narrative of how the world is ordered and how our faith forebearers, our spiritual forebears, told stories to make meaning of the order of the world and understood the order of the world, why it is that the world is the way it is. That's the point of the beginning of the beginning of the biblical story. It's a tale of how God's people understood the origin of the cosmos, of the earth, and of humanity. It is so interesting to me that this beginning of the beginning of the biblical narrative, woman is the protagonist. It's sort of strange. We talk about this text as being, you know, like men are most of the main characters. There's a lot of patriarchy alive and well in this text, but here we have woman as the protagonists, protagonist of this beginning of the beginning narrative. And many good tales follow this pattern. There's an explicit prohibition issued by a powerful being, in this case, God, and then ignored by the story's main character. And in this case, it's Eve. And the chaos that ensues as the plot unfolds and unravels perhaps includes cover-ups and in a really good tale, some resolution. And woman in this story is that protagonist. She's setting in motion the unfolding plot. She is the curious one, the one who reaches, the one on whom the story hinges. Now, she's not only the protagonist, sort of the main character in this tale, but she seems representative somehow. She is certainly quintessentially human. There is no doubt about this. She is a seeker of knowledge. She is a curious one. She is a tester of limit, limits. And anyone who's ever had the pleasure of knowing a two-year-old or a three-year-old or my dear friend who just turned four a couple of months ago, I can say, or a four-year-old and probably beyond knows this to be true. If you've known a two-year-old or a three-year-old or four-year-old, you know that to be curious, to desire knowledge, to test limits and boundaries and patience and anything else that can be tested, this is to be human. Amen? <laughs> Amen. Genesis 3 is like Genesis 1 and 2 in that it describes movement. There is movement in Genesis 3 from a static world to a more vital and complex order. Just think of the creation narratives in Genesis 1 and 2, how they move from barren world to a world literally teeming with life. So there's huge movement in those first two chapters. And in Genesis 3, we have a similar life-changing, seismically altering movement. And that is movement from a clean, crisp, controlled world of rules and obedient, compliant earthlings. I almost wrote childlike, but we just discussed two, three, and four-year-olds. They are not childlike, right? They are not childlike. They are actually obedient and compliant earthlings. 
There's an easy harmony at the start of chapter three. And then this seismic movement to a world of struggle, knowledge, discernment, and hard work. You can see there are humans living in this world trying to understand why, how, wherefore, and how much longer. <laughs> there is this movement to the navigation of social rules, of sexual identities, the complexity of status and power, and the new realities of birth and death. Now, woman, who is eventually named Eve, Eve meaning life bearer, life bearer. Woman plays a key and active role in this movement from static to complex to compliant to struggle. She generates and helps to generate and birth the new challenging post-Eden world. And perhaps her naming as life bearer captures this truth. In addition to birthing new little humans, because the world is populated with humans, we presume they come from our mother Eve. But in addition to birthing new little humans, she has also helped to birth this new, more complex, grayscale world. Now, one thing that initially broke this story open for me many years ago was when I discovered that the, I didn't discover, somebody illuminated me, and then I reread and found it to be true, that the snake doesn't lie. Ever. We've been so conditioned by, like I said, Augustine and Milton to think of the snake as Satan, and we think the snake has lied and deceived. Snake doesn't lie. I used to think of the snake as a Satan-like figure that lies, swindles, deceives, to tempt, trick, and cause the woman to flub and fall. But it's not so. I urge you to go back and read it again and see if, see if you can discover a lie in there. The snake is a trickster in the tale, to be sure. In the spirit of Greek mythology's Prometheus, who gives fire, and many others, tricksters have great power to transform situations. So the snake is not compliant, is not, well, not compliant. <clears throat> What's the word I'm looking for? Um, not benign. Like the snake is an actor in this story and does have great power as a trickster in the story to transform the situation. Through some mischievous means and shaking things up dramatically, even to alter the world. And that's what we have in this story, in our origin story, is this trickster who helps to alter the world as our spiritual forebears are trying to make sense of the world of struggle that they're living in. But those tricksters in these tales, including in this one, have less power than the gods. And while mischievous, tricksters are not best classified as evil just a bit sneaky. Mm -hmm. Snake is a trickster in that spirit. He doesn't lie, really doesn't outrightly deceive woman or anyone else. Woman is not passive prey of a malevolent serpent. She is a conscious agent, choosing the knowledge of good and evil. 
Eve, life bearer, has set a table for all time and all place. It is not a clean and pristine table. It is not a table filled with obedient, compliant earthlings. It is a messy table, a complex table. Like that colloquially oft-referenced Thanksgiving table, you all know what I'm talking about, with your racist, racist Uncle Nicky sitting next to your queer cousin, sitting next to your peacekeeping grandma. It's a messy, complicated family table that Eve, our life bearer, has set for us. And this is our origin story. Eve, life bearer, has set the table. And all. <laughs> oh, come one, come messy, complicated, all. All are welcome. Stay tuned for part two.